In Genesis 2-7, we read this. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, I just told you that the theme of the conference this past week was the church in the era of COVID-19, and you might wonder what does this have to do with that conference theme? The answer is that this passage in Genesis gives us insight, an important insight into what we are as humans. And that, in turn, has implications for how we understand and interact with technologies like Zoom or YouTube or Facebook or StreamYard or whatever other medium. To expand and to explore this relationship between what we are and what that means for our use of technology, particularly as it pertains to the worship of the church, is the aim of my message this evening. So let's begin with a brief overview of an important development in the history of Christian anthropology. And anthropology, of course, is just the study of man. From the beginning, God's people had a proper understanding that we were not merely spiritual beings, but that we were also bodies. Notice I did not say that people understood that we had bodies, but I said that people understood that we are bodies as well as souls. In Job 19 and verse 26, which was likely written around the time of Abraham, most scholars think that Abraham and Job were most likely contemporaries or near contemporaries. So in Job 19 and verse 26, which is therefore an early Old Testament text, we read this. Job says, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So from the beginning, from this this early stage of Old Testament history, the scriptures are very clear to us that God's people understood that their hope was not that they would one day escape from the body, but rather that one day in their flesh, after their skin had been destroyed, yet in their flesh they would see God. In other words, the redemption of the body, the resurrection of the body, has been the hope of God's people since ancient times. In 1 Corinthians, which is well known to us, of course, we read the same sort of thing. Listen to verses 12 through 23. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, that means dead, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I repeat, the hope of God's people, all the way from way back in Job's day, right through to the New Testament Scriptures, the hope of God's people, biblically, has always been not the escape from the body, but the redemption and the resurrection of the body. However, at some point, Christians began saying things like this gospel songwriter that I'm about to quote said, writing about his death, don't you cry over my body, because that ain't me lying there. Christians started talking that way at some point. In other words, we stopped thinking about our bodies as us. And we started thinking about our real selves. Who are you really? We started thinking about our real selves as our souls or our spirits. Or whatever you want to call the immaterial part of what we are as humans. And we started viewing the body as something that holds us back. Something that we need to escape from in order to experience the fullness of what it means to be human. Where did this development come from? The answer is either Plato, the philosopher, or a misreading of Plato, the philosopher, depending on who you ask. There is some scholarly debate about whether Plato actually held and espoused the view that I'm about to share with you. But there is no real debate about whether or not people have understood him this way that I'm about to unfold. And even if people misread and misunderstood him, there is no doubt that the misunderstanding has taken on a life of its own and has entered popular thought. And so whether it came from Plato properly interpreted or not is neither here nor there for our purposes today. But here is the problematic understanding. Some people began to think, as they interacted with Plato's work, that there is a purer and better immaterial plane of existence. And the material world is a lesser plane of existence. The way that a shadow is a lesser thing than whatever form it reflects. Some of you may have studied Plato's allegory of the cave. And some people understood it to mean what, I, what I'm saying to you, that there is this reality of which material things are just shadows. And the better, realer, purer, immaterial, abstract forms are out there somewhere. 
So there are abstract things like truth, goodness, wisdom, justice, virtue, love, etc. And they're sort of out there somewhere floating. But you never see any of these things embodied perfectly. So even a generally just judge might be grumpy one day and sentence someone to a couple more months longer than he should. Or he might make mistakes and render an unjust sentence in some other way. Even the love of a generally good mother may be impure and imperfect at times. And so some interpreters of Plato started thinking that the more that you could detach from the imperfect material world in which we presently live and live in the world of ideal and pure forms, the better. Now Christians ran with this idea and we started thinking of heaven as that perfect immaterial place where one day we will escape from our bodies which hold us back and we will go immaterial to this perfect immaterial plane of existence where these abstract pure forms exist such as truth, goodness, beauty, wisdom, love, etc. And so this way of thinking developed in such a way that we started thinking of our real selves as that immaterial, invisible part, call it our souls or our spirits or whatever else you please. And we started thinking of our bodies as lesser and not the real us. So here we are now presently dealing with aches and pains in our bodies and tiredness and fatigue and so forth, but one day we will be free from these bodies that hold us back and we will go and we will live in this more perfect immaterial world, which is more perfect for the very reason that it is immaterial. Now to simplify for the sake of, if I lost anyone in this little detour into Plato's philosophy, at some point Christians started thinking of their souls and or their spirits as better and realer and more truly themselves than their bodies. But against this understanding, the Bible teaches that humans are, are dust. Not that humans have dust, that humans are dust. As the text that I've taken as the basis of this message asserts, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So we are dust. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, God Himself tells Adam explicitly, You are dust. Of course, I don't, I don't agree with the secular astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson's overall worldview and conclusions about the nature of reality. But he is bang on, excuse the pun, when he states that we are atomically connected to the universe. We are part of the universe. Listen, we are, it's true, atomically made of the same stuff as plants 
and animals and the rest of the material world. And this material composition isn't just incidental to our present state of being like the clothes that we happen to be wearing today, but probably when we get home, we're going to take them off and throw them in the laundry hamper and put on something else tomorrow. Our material composition isn't something that's just incidental to us that we happen to be in today. Our material composition is fundamental to who we are. In other words, it is just as true to say your body is the real you as it is to say your soul is the real you. So, when we die, we don't become the realest, purest version of ourselves. Rather, when we die, we become a disjointed, deficient, disintegrated version of ourselves. Until the day of resurrection, when our bodies are raised and reunited with our souls and all is again and forever what it should be. Just one more scripture text here to drive this point home because grasping this firmly is the key to understanding and agreeing with the inferences and conclusions and applications that I will make and draw from this passage. Consider with me 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 13 to 18. Listen as I read it. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That means dead. It's just a euphemism. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, time doesn't permit me to give you a thorough exposition of that passage. But what I want to point out to you, for the sake of our purposes tonight, is what this passage says about the location of the dead in Christ. On the one hand, it says in verse 14, that God will bring them with Him. Meaning that God will bring them with Him when He returns to make His dwelling place with man, as Revelation 21 says. When Jesus descends in verse 16, the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, descend with the new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21 with the dead in Christ to make all things new and to live together with those of us who are still alive at that time here in the new heavens and new earth forever. So God will bring with Him 
at that time those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Implying that they were where? In heaven. With Him. And when Jesus descends, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Right? So they were in heaven and they're going to descend with Him. But on the other hand, verse 16 says that the dead in Christ will rise. Well, which is it? Notice the directional language. Up and down. How can God bring with Him as He descends from heaven the dead in Christ? Meaning that they are coming from up there and moving downward. And also, at the same time, this passage tells us that the dead in Christ shall rise. So they were down and they are coming up. The answer to this question lies in the separation of the body and the soul at death. The soul departs at death to be with Christ, as Philippians 1 says. In other words, it ascends to heaven from whence it will one day descend. But the body descends not into hell, but into the grave. From whence it will one day rise. So part of you goes upward and part of you goes downward when you die in Christ. When Christ returns, He brings with Him as then, as verse 14 says, look at your Bibles. When Christ returns, He brings with Him that part of the dead in Christ which had ascended to heaven namely the soul, and the other part of the dead in Christ, which has descended to the grave, rises. Namely, the body. This is the way that we can resolve the difficulty that this passage presents to us by describing dead Christians as descending from heaven with Christ at His return, but also rising from their graves when He returns. There is, at the end of all things, a reunification of the soul and the body which had been unnaturally separated by death. And we will live forever with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, not as disembodied spirits, but as warm-bodied, red-blooded physical beings in a very real physical new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are dust. We are material beings. And it is irrelevant to our study tonight whether you, you view the human being as dichotomous, that means body and soul, or trichotomous, body, soul, and spirit. Good Christians disagree about that particular issue. But notice that in the dichotomous view and in the trichotomous view, the body's in both. So it's a moot point for our purposes tonight. You are your body. And your body is you. And your hope is not that you will one day escape the body to live immaterial with, immaterially with God forever. The hope is that one day your soul and your resurrected body will be reunited such that you are an embodied person for all of eternity living together with Jesus in a restored world which has been made new. 
So what does all of this have to do with the conference theme of the church in the era of COVID-19? Again, as I said at the beginning, this has implications for how we in understand and interact with technologies like Zoom or StreamYard or YouTube or Facebook or TikTok or whatever else. The point I would like to press upon you tonight is this. God's ideal for us is to assemble for worship in soul and body. As we all know, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Modern technology has raised the question, are we meeting together if we meet on Zoom? Are we meeting together if we meet on YouTube or Facebook or whatever else? In other words, are we assembling together if we assemble online, virtually? Now, many Christians over the last couple of years have answered this question or this series of questions that I just posed to you with either a no or a yes. Those who say no tell us that online assembling is no assembly at all. We are not really meeting together. For example, Mark Devers Church in Washington, D.C. does not recognize online meetings as assembling together. And therefore, their church did not utilize live streaming or Zoom meeting or anything during the pandemic. Jonathan Lehman, a friend and colleague of Mark Dever, also associated with Nine Marks, says elsewhere, by biblical standards, there's no such thing as the virtual church. So are we really meeting together when we meet online? Mark Dever, Jonathan Lehman, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Nine Marks, no. We're not. Then on the other hand, there are those who tell us unequivocally that yes, assembling online is real assembly. And in fact, we don't need to meet in person at all. Online is completely okay. We have observed, I'm sure that many churches have taken this approach during the pandemic. In fact, I've heard of churches that have said, well, we could save a lot of money on building maintenance and so on and so forth if we just go totally online. We will just be a virtual church entirely now. So on the one hand, you have some folks saying, no, meeting online is not really meeting together. It's not really assembling. And on the other hand, you have people who say, yes, it actually is. However, I believe that when we consider this issue theologically, we'll find that the answer to the question of whether or not assembling online is really assembling is not actually a yes, nor is it actually a no. It's a sort of. Alright, this is because there really is a category for being present with each other in spirit. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul acknowledges this when he says, quote, Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. End quote. 
And again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says, Though absent in body, I am present in spirit. So when we meet together on Zoom or StreamYard or YouTube or whatever else, can't we really say, like Paul, that we are absent in body but we are together in spirit? Yes. However, Paul acknowledges in the aforementioned examples that though there is a sense in which he is present, there is a sense in which he is absent. Though he, there is a sense in which he is together with the saints, there is a sense in which he is not together with the saints. Brothers and sisters, as beings with souls and bodies, we are only partially together when we are together online. Are we really assembling then when we assemble online? Not yes, not no, but sort of. We are together in spirit, but we are not together in body. And I repeat the point that I'm trying to make to you. God's ideal is for us to assemble together in soul and body to worship. He has instituted things in worship which are only possible when we are together in body. For example, Romans 16 and verse 16 says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. There are to be culturally appropriate physical signs of affection for one another when we, which are exchanged when we gather. In that culture, a kiss. In our culture, a handshake or a hug, a smile. Brothers and sisters, by God's command, we are to show affection to one another in morally, socially, culturally appropriate ways with our bodies. God cares so much about whether or not you shake someone's hand that He put it in the Bible. God cares so much about, about whether you use your bodies to show affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the visitors that we have among us and the outsiders who join us from the outside looking in as we gather for worship. That he put it in the Bible. And you can't shake someone's hand or exchange a hug or something like that on Zoom. You you can't even exchange a smile with the camera off, you know. Then there are the sacraments of the church. Baptism and communion. And again, your body must go under the water if you are to be baptized. There is no such thing as being baptized in soul. And your taste... I got a mic problem here. Let me, let me try the other one. Test, test. And your taste buds must sense the bread and the cup as you eat and as you drink of the body and the blood of Christ. And these must be digested. You take communion with your body. 
And if you are observing the sacrament rightly, it is not a private individual affair, you know. It's a meal that you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Communion, properly understood, signifies not just communion with God, but communion with one another. You can't take that privately in your own home on Zoom. Obviously, I recognize it's possible to go through the motions, but whatever that is, that is not sharing a meal with your brothers and your sisters in Christ, which is what communion truly and properly is and is intended to signify. Then the scripture says, sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3, 16. Listen to that again. Sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It doesn't say sing to God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And my point here is not that we're not singing to God when we sing. My point here is, is to say that the Bible talks about it as being more than that. That there is not merely a vertical dimension to our singing, but there is a horizontal dimension to our singing. Now, when the pandemic broke out a couple of years ago and churches started meeting on Zoom, most churches tried to sing together, you know. But before long, please, everybody but the speaker, please mute your microphones. I am hearing some feedback. Please mute your microphones. Brother Joe, please mute your microphone. Sister, please mute your microphone. <laughs> right? Because we realize that you can't have everybody's microphone on. It just doesn't work. There are latency issues and feedback and so forth. Online worship, at least for now, with the present technology that we have available to us, necessarily requires the muting of all but the broadcaster. So we can sing to God in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs when we worship online. But at least with our present technology, we cannot obey the command to sing to, sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So in summary of this section of my message, you, you just cannot enjoy the table fellowship with God's people that you are intended to. Nor can you feel the waters of baptism wash over your body. Nor can you give or receive a handshake or a hug. Nor hear the voices of the saints enveloping you with the praises of God from the comfort of your own home. We are meant to assemble not only in spirit, but in body also. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 emphasizes to us that the Spirit is not the be-all and end-all when it comes to glorifying God. It says, glorify God in your body. And we ought to be thinking about that as we come to church. We ought not to be thinking, I'm about to go engage my spirit in the worship of God, in the assembly of the saints. We ought to be thinking, our, our paradigm as we drive to church ought to be, I am going soul and body to assemble with the saints and to glorify God with my soul and my body as I assemble. And there are ways that God in, intends for me to glorify Him with my body. You get the idea. But I have one more aspect of this issue to consider before I'm prepared to let the matter rest. 
And that important aspect worthy of our consideration is this. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The Apostle John makes this a primary indicator of orthodoxy. We actually read it again in God's providence. It is amazing as we just read a chapter from the Old Testament and the New Testament and plot our way through. I point this out all the time because it just amazes me. How often I'm referring to a passage that we just happened to read by chance earlier in the service. We read 1 John 4 this evening. And the Apostle John makes this a primary indicator of orthodoxy when he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And he says elsewhere, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 2 John chapter 1 and verse 7. In Hebrews 10, 5, Jesus says, a body you have prepared for me. And of course, there is the well-known John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Gospel is not simply that Jesus came to save our souls. The Gospel includes the reality that Jesus came to save our bodies. Gregory of Nazianzus, a 4th century theologian, says that which is not assumed is not healed. And by that, he means if there is any aspect of our nature that Jesus did not assume or did not take upon himself, then that aspect of our nature cannot be healed by the work of Christ. We could flip Gregory's statement around, and it is equally true. That which is assumed is healed. The fact that Jesus has come in the flesh and was resurrected bodily means that not only our souls, but our bodies are part and parcel of the salvation that He came to bring us. Our hope, as I said earlier, is not simply that we will be disembodied spirits floating around ethereally in Plato's perfect immaterial plane where there are abstract, pure forms forever. Our hope is that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth and we will live there in resurrected bodies with Jesus who Himself is in a resurrected body. Perish the thought then that the body is irrelevant to Christianity and what really matters is what we do with our souls. Perish the thought that we can meet fully and totally online and that it doesn't actually matter if we get together physically in person. Christianity involves the understanding that man is both soul and body. And that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us in order to redeem both soul and body. Our understanding of anthropology and our understanding of the gospel are therefore organically linked and have certain implications and applications as we think through 
worship in this age where there are so many digital options available to us. In conclusion, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it well, man's body is not his prison, his shell, but man himself. Man does not have a body. He does not have a soul. Rather, he is body and soul. The man who renounces his body renounces his existence before God the Creator. In contrast, to honor God as Creator who has made us both body and soul, we ought to assemble together in both body and soul insofar as is possible. That technology is wonderful, which facilitates us being together in pandemic, pandemic times such as these to, agree, to a degree never before possible in human history. I'm grateful for Zoom and Facebook and YouTube and all these things. We are permitted to take advantage of these things. It is real assembly. It is real worship. But it is partial assembly and partial worship. We are together in soul, but not in body. We are able to participate in some elements of worship, but not all elements of worship. We should lament the less than ideal assembly that an online worship service is then. And insofar as possible, we should endeavor to gather together physically in person with the saints. Now, obviously, this has implications and applications for the choices that we make as a church. Will we try to meet? The answer should be yes, we will. If we are not providentially hindered, we will meet physically together. Not just in soul, but in body also. But I want to also press upon you the application of this with respect to the choices that you make where there is a online option. Now obviously I'm preaching to the choir because all of you are here physically tonight. But listen, a lot of churches are experiencing an issue now that they started live streaming where a lot of people are just staying home and live streaming. And the pastors try to talk to the people about it and they say, well, I'm still listening. I'm still participating. You need to understand that you are only partially there and partially participating. And if everything that I have said tonight is true, then unless you are providentially hindered, you need to rule out the live stream option and get to church. Make it a priority to be with God's people, not just in soul, but in body. Obviously, again, it can be a blessing for those who are providentially hindered, whether by sickness or whatever, or if a pandemic or, you know, if we had a hurricane or something like this. There are times when we might say, hey, look, we got to settle for a less than ideal temporarily. But don't let the thinking creep in that it's an okay substitute and that it's, it's an equivalent substitute. It is always less than ideal and partial. Make it a priority to be together with God's people, both in soul and body. The very gospel is that Jesus became flesh to redeem both our souls and bodies so that we would live spiritually and physically with Him forever in resurrected bodies. 
Let us own the fact that as the scripture says that we are men of dust. And let us reckon with the truth that the technologies available to us in this digital age are insufficient for the expressions of worship, the manner of worship that God requires in its totality, in His Word. This is in... This is all harmonious with our understanding both of anthropology as well as with the gospel itself. So let us take it to heart and work this out in our our practice and the choices we make.